0: Everything in this world is changing, and the legal systems are changing. If you want to be in that top part, you have to identify where those changes are, identify those trends, what it means from a legal perspective, both in how you lawyer or what it means to a client, what they should be doing differently, and get out there and educate clients.
1: Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Seagal Barnas. Our guest today is a lawyer who's bringing over 30 years of IP and tech law strategic advice and thought leadership, especially ones driven by new business models and disruptive technologies. His practice focuses on blockchain, interactive entertainment, AI, and online gambling. This is a lawyer who has been involved in blockchain since 2012 and has been recognized by leading organizations including Best Lawyers in America, Cryptocurrency, Blockchain, and FinTech Trailblazer, and the National Law Journal. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads and the co-head of both Shepard Mullins' blockchain and games teams, James Scotto. Jim, it is wonderful to have you here.
0: It's a pleasure to be here, Sigal. Thank you very much for having me.
1: Of course. I actually still remember the first time you and I spoke. It was many years ago when I reached out to you to do some longline courses on virtual reality. I was super excited. I was ready to create this whole virtual reality series, and when I reached out to you, I was so surprised to find someone that was equally excited to do it with me. And since then, we've been doing a lot of courses with you on Lawline. So if you could tell me a little bit about how this all started.
0: Yeah, so it's just been a a 30 year journey. I have an engineering degree, went right into law, never worked as an engineer, but I've always been fascinated by new technologies and new business models. And I learned pretty early on as a lawyer, anytime there's change in technology or business models, it's good for lawyers. There's always going to be IP work. There's new tech regulatory issues. And so I've always tried to spot the trends, see what's new, kind of get out and study the issues before others and try to build a practice around that. And that's largely what I've done for the last 30 years.
1: So you started out as an engineer. Did
0: you always know that eventually you wanted to become a lawyer? I fell into it. I studied engineering and was debating a number of different things and decided to go into law. And I'd heard about patent law at the time back then. Patent law was going through a pretty significant evolution in the U.S. They created a new court of appeals for the federal circuit and patents were really starting to become more valuable. And I always was interested in the intersection of law and technology really captivated me and jumped in with both feet. And here I am 30 plus years later and still loving it.
1: I don't know if I ever told you this. I worked at Siemens Corporation. It was one of my first corporate jobs before Mm -hmm. college. And that's actually how I got introduced to patent law. They were working on silicon chips at the time. And I remember thinking to myself, wow, maybe I should go... into math or engineering because all the lawyers would tell me you have to have this background in order to go into patent law. I ended up not doing that. I ended up being an English major and reading all the literature that makes me happy. But that being said, I admired people that were able to have the foresight to do the foundational work in college that then brought them to that next level. But for you, you said that you fell into it. What does that mean to fall into it? So it's interesting.
0: I'd like to say that it was really well thought out, but it really wasn't. I, okay. as I started thinking about different options of what I wanted to do at my Engineering degree and, and law was one of them. I had applied to some law schools and, and was fortunate enough to get into Georgetown. And then when the reality of what it was going to cost set in, I started looking at different alternatives. And back then, the patent office had a program where if you worked as a patent examiner and were going to law school at night, they would pay for some of your law school. It it sounded intriguing to be a patent examiner. It it sounded even more intriguing that they were going to actually pay for some of my law school. I went that route. And so when I say I fell into it, that was really the start. Then I really liked it, stayed there for two years, and then went for the balance of law school, worked at, at a patent boutique, and have been doing patent and other IP work and technology work ever since. Wow,
1: that's super cool. I had no idea. Do you know if that's still an option for people?
0: I think that they've iterated the program over the years. I heard at one point that you had to be there a certain period of time before they would actually pay for any classes. For me, it was great. I came in, they paid for pretty much two years. You had to work one month for every credit they paid for or something. And when I left, there was a little bit of a balance I had to pay and the law firm actually paid it. So it worked out great for me (laughs) economically. That's wonderful. Yeah.
1: As an engineer turned patent attorney, what were you originally thinking you would do with that degree? What specifically drew you to wanting to work in patents to begin with?
0: to to be honest, it it was where the opportunity was at the time. The patent field was really just starting its leg up at that point. There was a shortage of lawyers with technical backgrounds. And so if you had a technical background and was interested in in patent law, and especially if you worked at the patent office for a year or two, it was very easy to get jobs at law firms. And as I continued to do that, that's where I developed a greater appreciation for the other areas of law within that field. So the other aspects of IP, like trademark and copyright, and then just the tech regulatory work as well. That's really how it all came together.
1: Where did this ability to see all of these emerging and disruptive technologies come
0: from? It it was a bit of an evolution. You had asked earlier about games. I had been doing work in the game space for a long time before that. And a big part of when I got into games, it was again, when games changed the business model from selling packaged software in stores for consoles to online games with downloadable content, virtual economies, and I was very fascinated by that business model, and it definitely created a lot of different legal issues. I was doing a lot of work with game companies on that, so I'd gotten introduced to virtual currency through that and some of the issues, and those were a lot easier because within a game, it's like a closed-loop currency. It keeps the legal issues easier to deal with. So fast forward to 2012, one of my clients who did some work in a game-related space, he actually became general counsel of the Bitcoin Foundation. He had gotten me involved and I had read about and heard of Bitcoin and had done some reading on it. But I really, based on his outreach, really started to dig into it, started going to a lot of the industry conferences back then, which then it was primarily just Bitcoin. In 2013, 14, Ethereum came along and then a million others. So I had been doing work and really studying that space and the different business models and technology going back to that time frame and and fortuitously a a bit fell into it because I had this client. But I've always just looked for, as much as you love to read literature, I spend at least an hour a day, if not more, just reading about technology and business trends with technology companies. That's really how it really happens and continues to happen.
1: Believe it or not, 2012 is when I started Lawline and my first course that I ever produced was a Bitcoin course. Everyone thought it was so insane for putting this up as a CLE course. I remember everyone being like, what is this? This is never going to last. And I remember thinking to myself, but could it? it, it Bitcoin was like, maybe $30 to buy an entire Bitcoin. I was like, I don't know if I should spend $30. (laughs) So now I'm just like, I can't believe I didn't buy it. But I think that really speaks to you because I think there's a lot of people like me in the world who can see it and can see that it's opportunities. But then there's other people that really lean into it and say, I feel confident in the future of this. I'm ready to lean in. What do you think allows you to be able to do that? What are the things that you look for that you could identify to say, you know what? This is more than just an interest. This is something that I believe has something more substantial to it.
0: That's a great question. I think the primary answer is that I really try to dig into the technology, right? So when there's new technology, there's always hype and there's a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of people repeat what they hear in the news and don't dig in. and I dig in and I try to formulate an assessment. Sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. I think back like in the early days of, of the internet, like in, in 94, even before it really was full scale commercialized, I'd really studied that. I'm like, this is gonna transform the world. Everyone else, not everyone else, but a lot of people were, this is a fad. Why would I need this? And blockchain is very similar. A lot of people don't understand the technology. There's bad things that are happening by bad people. That always happens with new technology. But I've dug in and in my belief, the way that I look at this is that the internet is an information protocol. It's a way to move information around the world. Blockchain is a transaction protocol. It's a way in a decentralized way to validate process and store transactions. And so I I think that the underlying technology is sound. I think there's a lot of experimentation going on right now. There's the early pirates are always trying to make a quick buck and what gives a black eye to the industry to get started. The regulators have been a little slow to regulate. They're trying to understand it. They don't want to kill it. And it's a difficult thing because they're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. So I look at all of that and say, is this something that has real value, notwithstanding the short-term issues? And if so, it's something I'm going to lean into and roll my sleeves up and dig in and work with companies on.
1: That's fascinating. When you do your research and your reading, what is the gamut of where you go to to really focus and ensure that you're getting the full picture of what you're researching?
0: It really varies. But like with Bitcoin, you got to start with the white paper. A lot of people that play in cryptocurrency never read the Bitcoin white paper. I don't know how you can do that. It's like reading almost the instruction manual. So that's part of it. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I find a lot of publishers that cover the topic well, not the, the hype part, but The technical part, the business part, I go to a ton of industry conferences and just speak to experts and just have conversations with people who I think are really smart and listen to them. And and you hear different opinions, but by talking to a lot of smart people and processing it, you can formulate your own version of the truth around this and come to a well-reasoned conclusion and not just like reading the headlines.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's really good advice, especially because it is very easy to just read from people that feed into the hype, whether that's NFT is going to make you a millionaire to NFT is the worst thing that's ever happened to our society. But at the end of the day, where I really want our listeners to really listen to you is really ensuring that you're surrounding yourself and continuing to be a part of a community that's really thinking deeply. So I think that's awesome. You did mention that you started really in gaming. Are you a gamer? I don't remember if you and I have talked about this. I,
0: I like video games. When I was in college, I played a lot of video games. They were very different than they are now, but I was always interested in games. And then when I was able to get to the point where I was representing so many game companies that I would try as many games as I could, but didn't have time to play a lot of the MMOs and the, the games that really require a lot of time. So I became more of a sampler of some of those games. But yeah, I continue to play games. My daughter once pointed out that she thought I got paid to play games for a living and it wasn't quite exactly <laughs> that way. but. <laughs>
1: That's living the dream, honestly. What's your favorite game of all time, if you can pick one?
0: I'll be honest, my favorite of all time. This is gonna this is gonna date me. Is like when I was in in college, I used to play Donkey Kong. I love strategy games. I love thinking you know, strategically, and and whether it's MMOs or other types of games, there's just been dozens that are that that have been come and gone that have been fun.
1: Since you have so much clout with the video game industry, I'd like to make a request. I'd like more couch co-op games. My husband and I play video games all the time, but it's very difficult for us to find good games that we can sit in the same room together and play mm-hmm. on a console.
0: <laughs> I will put the best together. <laughs> That's
1: what I'm looking for. And they have to have good graphics, good storytelling. I want lots of options on what my characters wear.
0: <laughs> it's important to me. Fashion is going to become even more important with blockchain and metaverses. It's really cool to see what's happening in the digital fashion space.
1: Yeah. Talk to me about that a little
0: bit. Uh, companies like Nike, they bought a digital sneaker company. You've seen a lot of the very high-end brands are selling NFT outfits and stuff, many of them will be ultimately usable across different platforms. And just like in the real world, we want to portray an image, whether it's high fashion or whatever the image is, in the real world, people will do that in virtual worlds, metaverses, et cetera. And the the cool thing is that for many of these metaverses, people will have different personas and different metaverses. If you go to one that's more of a professional type environment where you're engaging with coworkers or clients think of it like maybe a linkedin type version of a metaverse as the lawyer with the buttoned up suit and and then you go into the the more fun places and you're doing something a little more chill and cool and casual and you may have a good clubbing outfit so it's just going to replicate real life but that is going to be a huge part of the market because every avatar based platform people are not going to show up with a a generic avatar people are going to dress and people are going to accessorize and the Brands that are seeing that and are jumping in early, buying land in some of the metaverses, they're exploring now, but they're learning what works and what doesn't work. And it's really cool to see and and work with some of those companies.
1: Every single time I start a game that allows me to go into that type of detail for my avatar, I will spend a considerable amount of time dressing my avatars up it's important to me that i look the part <laughs>
0: exactly and that's how everyone will ultimately feel because everyone they see around them is going to be like that and i think when you combine that with like photorealistic avatars and real-time animation of avatars that it will mimic your eye head mouth movement like it, it, the experience is going to become so much better than what it's ever been and i think the early days of virtual worlds was a cool experiment technology was clunky but when you Fast forward to where we are now, the reason a lot of these metaverses are really taking off, these technologies have all come together and have moved forward. You have AR and VR, which are much more ready for prime time than they've ever been. The avatars and the fashion, we talked about the ability to I land and then you build on it. And you do stuff with it. This builder economy is becoming much more prevalent like throughout society. You look at even like kids with Roblox and Minecraft. All of these trends have come together and then it powered on the back end by. Blockchain based management of assets like land and your digital fashion and your avatars and whatever else. We're at this point in time where the technologies and the societal adoption and and use of them have come together. And that's why we're seeing this huge inflection.
1: Absolutely. I think about a lot about how Jules Verne's writings, like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and The Mysterious Island, a lot of the things that he talks about were like hot air balloons and things of that nature that later became a reality. Do you foresee something like Ready Player One being the Jules Verne of the future, where people are looking to a book like that and saying, yeah, this is like a roadmap for the future?
0: Yeah. So like whenever anyone talks about metaverses these days, they reference Snow Crash, Neil Stevenson's novel, and then Ready Player One, which ultimately became a movie. And I think we always think about things as, oh, that's so futuristic. But like a lot of the elements of that are here. Well, whether we'll get to that full single metaverse where all these metaverses are connected, that may happen at some point. But so many things that we've seen for decades that seem so futuristic. I remember like Dick Tracy, his little communicator watch in the comics back in the 60s and 70s. People like, oh, that's crazy. And we all have opera watches now. We've got self-driving cars, flying cars soon. So I think all of the things that start out so futuristic and science fiction, we end up moving in that direction in so many ways.
1: Wait, did you say we're going to have flying cars soon?
0: Oh, yeah. There's prototypes at work. Really? We're trying to get self-driving cars on ground first, but yeah.
1: Yes, absolutely. Self-driving, I can get behind. I'm not sure that I can get behind the flying cars because I'm worried.
0: (laughs) There's a lot less potholes up there. That's one advantage.
1: Less maintenance of roads, right? Exactly. Oh, that's so interesting. In this time where we're talking about the metaverse, you did mention that there is a lot of AR and VR technology, AR in particular, augmented reality, right? This idea that you can actually have a space that then gets layered with the virtual world. How much are you seeing investment and thought into augmented reality? Is that a thing that's still at the top of people's minds?
0: Yes, is a short answer. What I believe is that it's taken a while to get where we are. I really think we're going to see the next leg up very soon. There's a lot of big companies, like so Snap is doing a lot with AR. There's more companies building AR headsets. Apple has been investing in in AR for a long time. Tim Cook has said it's gonna be big. I think in the next year or so, we're gonna see a lot more both devices and applications and integration with metaverses and, and apart from that. And I think it's going to, it's going to really take off. I think that when you look at AR versus VR, I think they're both great and they, there's many advantages that each of the technologies have, but at a very high level and simplistic view with AR, if you have a set of AR glasses, like you can be walking down the street and just augmenting your day-to-day experience. Whereas for the most part with VR, you've got to put a headset on and you're in a virtual environment, you mostly can't be walking around. So it's time you're taking to get some really cool experiences but normally it will be separate and apart from what you're doing in your day-to-day life. Now, there are VR for enterprise. That's, we're working with some companies that are doing really big investments in that space for training, onboarding, simulation, collaboration, and, and other experiences that makes it really powerful. That'll be part of our life, but again, you still have to like do that. And then ultimately, if you look at what Microsoft has with like HoloLens is really more of what you hear is like XR device, which is a mashup of the two. If you could have the AR, VR combine and use whatever you want at the right time, that will be the ultimate, I think, use of those technologies.
1: How important do you think, now I'm going to move a little bit more into the professional space of this and focusing on on lawyers in general who are thinking more deeply about getting into this line of work. How important is it to really be sampling and being involved on a personal level with this stuff in order to feel like you're properly understanding it from a professional perspective?
0: I think it's critical. I think it's really hard, especially in, in a lot of areas I work on where it's like new business and new technology. I think to really fully understand it, you have to experience it and get an appreciation of what's happening. You know, you also have to understand the back end. That's where we work a lot with clients to have demos on what's going on in the back end. I think it's really hard to provide strategic legal advice if you don't have your arms wrapped around the technology, the business model, and and all of that. Do you have an Oculus? I do. Yeah. What are your favorite games? So while well, I play games on them, actually, my favorite thing to do is, is the experiences. There's a lot of recreations of places and it, the ability to explore parts of the world without leaving are amazing. But there's certain games like Beat Saber that like everyone plays. That's just fun. And and it's actually, I wouldn't say it's exercise, and as it,
1: but it, you're moving. Well, I use it as an exercise, by the way. There's lots of movement that's happening. I'm not one of those people that just moves their wrists like I'm full-fledged. <laughs>
0: You could make it as as, uh, much as you want. Yeah, so I think there's a lot of different experiences there. And I think one of the other things with VR that I was going to mention earlier and and just thought about again is that VR is the visual part. Now there's like 3D spatial audio and you get some really cool audio visual experiences, but there's so much more technology that's being developed for the rest of the senses. So there's you know, like gloves or other sensors where literally we could, if we met in VR, we, we could shake hands and, and it would feel like we're shaking hands. You'll have that tactile experience. There was a client I did work with and and they were probably too early in what they did, but I, I think you, you're going to see a resurgence of this is it was a company called Scent Sciences and they had these little devices with these oil canisters and it was software that would basically create a scent that would be synced to what you're seeing in that case on a computer screen what they were doing they had an e-commerce play where they were trying to work with companies like yankee candle where you could shop online but as we all know when you're buying a candle it's not about the color it's about the scent so Yankee Candle w- would be a great example of how you could you know, scent enable an application. But I think you'll see that over time as well. And so the level of like how immersive this technology can become, the technologies are are there. They need to be refined for commercial purposes. But it's pretty exciting to see some of the, the things that are on the drawing boards for some of the companies we're working with.
1: Especially because for me, as much as I love immersing myself in virtual reality, that's the thing that makes me not 100% in is the inability to have those tactile experiences. And especially when it comes to things like smell, which is probably one of the most powerful senses in a lot of ways because it, it can bring you back. It's very nostalgic. We know nostalgia is a very big part of entertainment and experiences. I think it's super important to have those. I never even thought about the business ramifications of like a candle company that can really sell their candles online when you have the ability to smell them beforehand. But I want to actually talk about this company because you said that they were maybe a little too early. What does that mean? And how do you help businesses
0: that are potentially too early? That's a, it's a great question. Sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. The legal aspect is really not the driver of that sometimes with AR and AR has been around for a long time you need to, to develop your piece of the technology but you need the underlying technology you need sufficient processing power you need glasses you need the little displays you know and all these pieces of technology are being worked on but many times when you're building a piece of technology that's dependent on other technologies They all have to come together and be ready for prime time at the same time. And there has to be a consumer and business acceptance of it. And so there's just a lot of things that have to come together. And sometimes it works. sometimes you you have to go back to the drawing board, or sometimes you have to iterate what you're doing and scale it down and do a piece of it and then build over time as these other pieces get put into place.
1: It seems like you have to have a lot of patience, a lot of money (laughs) to be able to wait it out a little bit.
0: That's another component for sure
1: (laughs) and the ability like you said to continue to see how all of those pieces come together with the piece that you're trying to bring to the table it's really fascinating before the pandemic in world trade center they had this company that i'd been following for a really long time called the void have you heard of them yes and so the void had a pop-up in world trade center in the oculus not the oculus quest but the oculus in the world trade center and it was awesome they had a star wars experience and it was the most incredible bringing together of all these different technologies of VR plus the AR and the ability to feel heat Mm -hmm. as you were going over lava or the ability to hold a gun when you were a starship trooper. And and I, I just marveled at the ability to take all of those things and put them into a 15 to 20 minute experience. But I always said to myself, like, how could you possibly scale this? I don't understand what that looks like from a business perspective. Have you ever experienced
0: them? Yeah, it's cool. You look at like other areas like cars, for example, like car companies constantly do these concept cars that are futuristic and that most of them not production ready. But there's a lot of industries where companies will map out the future. And then the question is, what's the timeline to actually get there with a commercial product? That's the challenge, right? Again, some of it's in your control. Some of it may be dependent on third party technology or software or, or other things that you need to partner with people, whatever. And again, that has to just all come together. It's fascinating. And that multi-sensory experience, like you were saying, is just more captivating. VR is cool. The 3D audio and the visuals are really cool. But when you put other layers of sensory experience on it, it just takes it to a whole different level.
1: It's incredible and amazing to me. So on that note, because I like this idea of a timeline, if a business comes to you and they are too early in some ways, is there ways in which you can strategically advise a business to slow the timeline or to take like smaller steps in order to keep themselves going, but also not invest too much too quickly and potentially die out?
0: It's case by case. I say the biggest challenge is when a, a company comes to us and they're like a platform that can be used across many industries. And you could certainly pursue all the industries at once, or you can pick one or two and and really get entrenched. And that's a big decision from a business perspective is which way do you go? That is an example of that. That's where even when you have the technology today and it's usable, but you have choices on where to deploy it. That's an easier choice than, okay, here's technology it's not ready today. How long do we keep pushing this (laughs) and hoping we can get to revenue? Right, So sometimes you have to do the minimally viable product and get started with something to get the concept out in the market and then iterate it as there's more acceptance, user feedback, and figure out what the market really wants. That's a big area we see a lot of times with technology is you could build cool technology, but if you're not solving a problem or if users are like, yeah, that's cool, but I'm not going to pay money for it, you're not going to have a business. So you have to look at kind of all those factors.
1: What do you think the number one thing the metaverse
0: solves for? That's an interesting question. I, I think it provides an immersive way to experience social you know, communication, right? We you think about where we are today with social media, it's become pervasive. And there's even my mom uses social media and she doesn't, she's not a computer person. And I think that everyone wants to be connected with people, friends, family, business people, whatever. And it's a... A limiting experience, right? It's text-based for the most part with, you know, pictures here and there, but when you take it to that next level of communication, I really think at at the the core of it, it's a much greater enhanced social experience with commerce wrapped around it. We've seen like some of the online virtual concerts that have happened have been pretty successful. I think you're going to see a lot of like music venues and and entertainment and, and social experiences like that in metaverses, and so I think it's just a way to bring people together in what we're already doing with social media in a much more immersive and heighten it heightens the experiential value of what we're doing.
1: It really like deepens the desire for
0: human connection
1: that can actually span across the world, which is super cool. I love that.
0: And as we touched on earlier, you can post your selfie pictures and stuff, but when you have an avatar and you're immersed in that experience with other people and you've got your digital fashion on and you can communicate and be virtually present, but like your avatars can be facing each other. And if you get facial expressions, that level of communication is just so much so far beyond where we are right now. And that's all pretty much feasible.
1: What I also love about it, cost of entry aside, which you know has to be worked on eventually, it creates just a whole level of accessibility. Someone that is potentially unable to travel can now travel. Someone that is unable to walk can now walk in a virtual sense. And so this idea of accessibility, this idea of people's ability to do things they wouldn't otherwise be able to do in the physical world, they're now able to do in the virtual world, which I think is there's so much opportunity there. Absolutely. Super cool. All right. I'm going to go through the rapid fire questions a little bit. First and foremost, what does leadership in the law mean to you?
0: The way I describe it, it's seeing around corners. If you are working in cutting edge areas of technology and and new business models, things aren't all mapped out from a legal perspective. And it really requires thinking through what existing laws apply because technology always leads regulatory issues and, and, and legislative changes. And so technology gets out there, pushes the envelope, and then regulators figure out what needs to be tweaked based on what's working and what's not working. So you have to anticipate that to some extent. And I think we're seeing that with NFTs right now. People are throwing so many things out. And we've been telling people for years about some of the problems, what you should avoid. And we're now seeing like a whole wave of lawsuits that is a textbook example of what not to do. And so it's that concept of figuring out how you can work with companies that want to push the envelope, do it in a way that's legally compliant, and then have them be positioned for the future as well.
1: So when we say seeing around corners and we're saying about anticipating things and staying legally compliant, I want to dig there for a second. What does that actually look like practically? Like if you have an associate that's working with you and you're like, okay, you got to see around corners. We're going to start working on NFT stuff together. Like how do you actually practically give that advice to someone? What are some of the things that you're doing?
0: We'll take a simple example. Every client that's doing something online needs a terms of service. And for the most part, the terms of service is a legal document, but most users don't read them unless they ever get into a lawsuit and their lawyer reads it to them. So the document is there in large part, if it's done properly, it protects the company. And so if you look at what could go wrong with whatever that business model is and how users might misunderstand something or how they might be upset and want to make a claim against the company, part of it is thinking through, okay, how can we structure the terms of service in a way that will minimize all that? Be fair to users. You always want to be fair to users. You want to be clear in your disclosures and you want your terms of service to be consistent with what you're telling people in a marketing message, but you want to protect yourself legally. And we've seen many cases where people had terms of service that weren't well done and they got sued and when they relied on the terms of service, didn't really help the company much. So you try to avoid that. Another bucket is when you are doing partnerships with other companies and doing a partnership agreement. Okay. Here's the deal today. But when you think through, okay, where is this going down the road? take ip for example so each company comes to the party with their own ip and you can say i own mine you own yours but over time there's going to be some jointly developed ip how do you deal with that down the road both when the partnership is still going on and when it's over it's always going to end at some point no one ever thinks about that when everything's good so you want to think through those issues and make sure that your client owns as much as they can or should based on the agreement and even then if they don't own it in some cases Like if you've been building something for years for another partner and then that deal goes sour you may want to even if you don't own the ip you may want to have a right to use that ip so that you're not prevented or required to rechange your entire system so that's another bucket a third bucket would be on the regulatory front. As I mentioned, especially right now in the crypto space and blockchain, we're seeing various agencies like Senate issued guidance back in 2013 and different agencies that have jurisdiction over different aspects of blockchain and crypto have issued guidance and done some enforcement actions. And there's conversations about them. There's proposed changes to, to laws now and states are passing laws. And there's only a limit to what you can do with this, but trying to understand what the regulators are thinking, the direction that they're going in, And trying to anticipate that to some extent, as you factor in future business plans or putting things into agreements, like if this becomes illegal in the future, what happens and dealing with those contingencies, that's part of that seeing around the corner is like, where is this going from a regulatory perspective? What does that mean to the client? And then how should you take action on it based on what they're doing or what they're doing with partners, for example?
1: How often would you look to other industries that are completely unrelated to IP and technology to see how the response to those areas have been and how does that inform, let's say, potentially your specific industry? So, for example, when you look at things like regulatory changes, would you look to the cannabis industry and say, this is the way this has evolved over time and let's use that as an example?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, the broader perspective you have, the better. And there's elements, you mentioned cannabis, one of their big problems is payments. And so payments is is an area where, at least to some extent, like that overlaps potentially with cryptocurrency. So to the extent that there's relevant components of another industry, absolutely, the more you look at, the better you can see what's actually played out there. But you have to understand where that industry is different than the one you're looking at, but glean the things that are relevant and, and discard the ones that aren't for sure you look at other situations in the past and how they played out the better you could at least factor that into your decisions
1: yeah absolutely okay next question if there was one thing you could improve about the legal industry what would it be
0: that's a great question so I, i'm going to approach it from a business perspective i'm not the first to say this but the business model of law firms is generally stupid the billable hour It doesn't help anybody i I give you an example like i have clients i'll have conversation with them several times a couple hours and they do something that either makes them a lot of money or they save a lot of money because they didn't go down a path that would have wasted money for example literally millions of dollars in a couple hour conversation and i make a couple thousand dollars for doing that and that's from a value proposition of having 30 years of legal experience to be able to give that kind of advice in a very concise way in a short number of hours that clearly benefits the clients and that's great but i'm not selling value i'm selling time that's not smart then there's other situations where like i used to do a lot of litigation i don't do as much litigation anymore but litigation is so contentious literally you can spend weeks just discussing when you're going to take that position you're paying a thousand dollars an hour for an attorney to do scheduling that doesn't add a lot of value to the client so that's not good either that's that's not like what lawyers want you want to add value to your client but there just needs to be a better value proposition. But the general business model has always confounded me. And I think a lot of firms talk about different billing models and we have alternative fee models. A lot of them are still primarily based on hours. Like if you're doing a fixed fee engagement, it's basically starting with an estimate of how many hours, what would it be if we build the hours and then tweaking that. So while you're giving a a fixed fee, it's still an hours-based thing. So I don't know. That's just something that's, that's frustrated me and many other lawyers for since the beginning of time, probably, but it's a great profession. It's very challenging. It's very demanding. All of those things are good and I wouldn't, you know, change any of those, but the business model is if someone could come up with a better way to do that would be ideal.
1: Yeah. Is there somewhere in the tech world or in the industries that you're working in right now, is there a solution there? Yeah, there's
0: a whole legal tech field, so to speak. There's a guy that that used to work for me. He started a company that is uh, using AI to draft patent applications. And so it creates a way to take the things that are more the programmatic part of drafting an application and turn that over to a machine, but having the initial input is the a lawyer structuring certain aspects of the application that gets fed in, run through the models, and then a more enhanced draft comes back and then a the lawyer reviews it. So yeah, that's one simple example, but there, there's a lot of technology that's being used and w- which creates greater efficiency. And I think there's still a question of how do you price that. Some clients were like, here's the technology. You should be using this to be as efficient as possible. But if the law firm is investing in that technology, how should they get that return? Is it just baked into their hourly rate? Or is there a better way that, again, mutually aligns the value proposition for clients and lawyers to leverage legal tech? And I think that's still emerging as well.
1: That's very interesting. And I, I wonder about that too, because if the law firm business model is very much based on revenue and billable hours, but the billable hours are then reduced by these efficiencies, then how do you continue to make those hours like more clientele? Well,
0: well that's, that's a great question. And that's one of the impacts on the industry right now. So if this is a big challenge for the industry is that the advantage of that technology is it takes the, I'd say, the more ministerial part of lawyering away, like document review. There's tools for legal research. There's tools that will actually, if you do an outline of a brief, it will generate a brief, Sim- similar to how the patent tool works. And so the benefit of that is clients are paying more for the strategic part of lawyering, which you can't automate. The problem though, is that the way most junior lawyers learn is by doing legal research, document review, and all of that. And so it's putting a greater pressure on junior lawyers because the things they've traditionally done at a lower billing rate to learn and work alongside more senior partners, those opportunities aren't there as much anymore. And so it's becoming harder in big law for junior associates to have a value proposition there's some clients that have recognized that and they'll limit what they're going to pay they don't want to pay to educate a lawyer and so again that's a a situation where there needs to be a better balance and a rethinking of the system as to how with these advancements in technologies you bring new lawyers along in a way that's cost-effective
1: I've been interviewing a lot of people, and one of the things that people say that they would change about the legal industry is the structure of law school, and that many times students, they graduate law school and they don't know how to practice law. Law firms are usually the ones training them to do that and so on. It's interesting to me if you could take the stuff that is important to the practice of law, but is very, like you said, administrative in nature and kind of Shift that over to the law school model instead, where they're actually learning all of those real time things beforehand, and then they come out and those efficiencies are there. So, anyway, I think that's.
0: No, that's, that's interesting. And in, in the early days of lawyering, there used to be more apprenticeships. Like I, I, I mentioned at the beginning of the, the podcast, that I had the good fortune to work at the patent office and I worked at a law firm for two years. So, when I came out of law school, I had four years of patent experience already, or three and a half. And so I was able to hit the ground running. Most people who go straight from college through three years of law school and then to a law firm have no business experience and they have no real legal experience and i've had this conversation with some law schools and some professors and others a lot of the law schools say we don't want to be a trade school we teach you to think like a lawyer and yes to some extent that's true but i think clinics are a great way for lawyers to get a hands-on experience so many lawyers come out of law school they don't know where the courthouse is and they wouldn't know where to go if they found it, that's a problem. And again, that's not what you want law school to be. It's just like a, a, a mechanics course. But again, putting all that together, I think changes in the law school programs would help this situation and, and may become necessary in light of some of these factors we're talking about.
1: Agreed. So what piece of practical advice would you give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in the legal industry looking to follow your leads.
0: Keep your eyes open see where there's opportunities. A lot of people say lawyers are like lemmings. Once an area gets hot and it's figured out, everyone wants to do it. And then it becomes commoditized work. And so if you look at the way that, you know, clients view legal work there's bet the company case then there's the next tier down is complex things that like not a lot of lawyers can do requires specific knowledge expertise etc then the next tier down is probably the vast majority of a lot of you know legal work that's done by amla 100 firms it requires some skillful lawyering and then there's the the bottom rung which is just commodity work which is managing a bunch of paralegals or a lot of automated tools You want to be at the top of that pyramid or near the top. There's limits to how many bet the company cases you're going to be able to do, but you want to be in that top sector. And there's a lot of ways to get there. Everything in this world is changing and the legal systems are changing. And if you want to be in that top part, you have to identify where those changes are, identify those trends, what it means from a legal perspective, both in how you lawyer or what it means to a client, what they should be doing differently and get out there and educate clients. That's one of the things that I I do a lot of. There's certain areas, like if a client's doing a deals antitrust issue, they know they have an antitrust issue. With a lot of the companies I work with, they don't know the issues they have. Part of it is helping them understand what are the legal issues that you're gonna face if you go down this path of doing NFTs or cryptocurrencies or whatever, if you wanna do it in a legally compliant way. And so providing that value to the client of helping them know what they don't know that gets you to the higher end. It's not just about hours or commodity level work.
1: And you're a partner at, at Shepard Mullen and, and have been for a while. What would you say to someone that's really looking to go the partnership track at a law firm?
0: It's very rewarding. It's very demanding. It's not automatic by any means. It requires an incredible level of of dedication. And you have to decide whether you want to put in the time and effort to do it. Some people really just don't have what it takes to be a partner in in an M100 law firm. But a lot of people who do decide they don't want to do what it takes to get there because of the time and they want to have a better work-life balance. Just go in with your eyes wide open and figure out if that's the path you want. And is it realistic that you will be able to accomplish that if that's what you choose?
1: What is something people seem to misunderstand about the work that you do?
0: That's a good question. What I hear maybe the most is that I get quick answers to questions that people think it's just like easy, but like they don't understand like the hours and hours of reading I do <laughs> on a weekly basis to be able to answer those questions quickly. I, I think that's probably the biggest part.
1: Yeah. When you take so much time on your own and within your practice to truly understand, like you were talking about earlier, the conferences that you go to, the people that you talk to, the things that you read, all of that comes together and the answers that you give. And just because you give a quick answer, it's not as easy as it seems. There's a lot
0: of work that goes into that. You said that better than I did. Yes. I like that. <laughs> <it. laughs> I will admit that as my answer. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: done what is your favorite self-care
0: practice i like getting physical activity being out in nature is just like i'm in montana right now i'm surrounded by beautiful snow-capped mountains and it's just a tranquil thing for me it level sets the mind and puts me in a good mood what's your favorite thing that happened today i woke up and it was snowing i'm heading skiing right after this
1: (laughs) that's awesome i won't keep you too much from your skiing then I want to thank you so much, Jim, for being on the show. It's so good to see you again. It's really great to talk to you again. I always gain so much value from our conversations. If anyone wanted to chat with you about the things that you talked about today or about other work that you do, how can they best connect with you? Probably
0: easiest, hit me up on LinkedIn. Just type in my name and Shepherd Bullen and uh, connect with me and I'd be happy to, to chat.
1: Thank you so much, Jim. I hope you have a great day. I hope you enjoy your skiing.
0: Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Great questions. And you made me think about some stuff I hadn't answered before, so it's always... A pleasure to speak with you as well. You do a great job.
1: Thank you, leaders and future leaders for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE, and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry, with almost five stars and over a 1,000 verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.